wonderful, uh, wonderful singing, um, just beautiful hymns. Uh, Nick, what you said, I echo that. The choice of those hymns just enable us to think about the glory of God, the goodness of God, his salvation, and, and that's why we're, uh, we're here this morning, uh, to remind one another of the gospel of Christ, our Savior, uh, so that we might be strengthened, built up, and equipped uh, to go forward. So I invite you to take your Bibles and turn to the Gospel of John. Uh, the Gospel of John, we've been going through this, uh, this book. I was talking to a pastor friend of mine this week, and uh, he's kind of been following where we've been. We've been in the book of Hebrews, and then we went to John, and now he's in Hebrews, and he's coming to John, and he asked me, he said, you know, how is it, Roman? What are some of your thoughts on going through the Gospel of John? And I said, you know, I've just really been blessed to go through these first 11 chapters because John's point has been the same throughout. He's saying, look at Jesus, look at his signs, look at his miracles. This is who he is. He is the Son of God, the Messiah, the Savior of the world. And so we've spent 11 chapters really hammering that, that message home, and God thinks and knows it's for our good, that we need to remember this we need to remember who Christ is and the Savior that we serve so that we can be stronger and equipped to go through life grounded and anchored in the world to a beautiful, wonderful, sovereign Savior. And so that, this is who Christ our Lord is, and, and we're coming now to the end of chapter 11. So the end of chapter 11, the opposition has grown so great to Jesus that even after raising a man from the dead, Lazarus, which we saw last week, the opposition has grown so great that uh, his own people create a plot now to kill him. Right? Verse 45. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all. Nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Jesus, therefore, no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim, and there he stayed with the disciples. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood at the temple, what do you think, then that he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for um, 
We thank you for its enduring nature that um, it endures through all generations, that your word will never fail. It will accomplish everything that you have set it forth to accomplish. Your word uh, is eternal and it is life-changing and it brings salvation and hope to sinners and it is found in the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior, the word of God incarnate. We thank you that we have seen his glory as we've gone through this book. We have seen it testified to by his miracles and by his words and by his kindness and love and, and mercy. We have seen it testified to in the healing of a man born blind and the raising of Lazarus from the dead, among many other things. And so I pray, we pray this morning, Father, that as your church, we would be encouraged and strengthened by the truth that we look at this morning. Uh, that we would see that there is a world that is still plagued by unbelief, but we would yet be grateful that you have granted it to us to believe in the Lord Jesus. We ask, O oh God, that your word would go forth from every pulpit this morning, that sinners would hear Christ proclaimed, and as long as you are showing grace and patience in the world, that you would draw many to faith in Christ this morning, maybe even here at Ranch View Baptist Church. So may you be honored. May you be with my lips and tongue as I, as I speak your, your word to your people. And may you be with them as they listen. Holy Spirit, may you equip and strengthen them and grant them discernment and grant us all your grace. In the name of Christ Jesus, we pray. Amen. So the works and words of Jesus usually, and even today, create feelings of apathy, hostility, and acceptability uh, concerning him. You might have thought that the resurrection of Lazarus, undoubtedly the resurrection of a man from the dead, would have softened the heart of stone that is in sinners. But the reality is that there's no work of God which sin and our hearts will not taint and pollute by the cynicism, you might say, or venom of unbelief and sin. And it's a reminder to us as we look at this chapter that no miracle will ever, no miracle will ever be enough to convince men of the gospel. No miracle will ever be enough to convince men of their need for repentance, faith, and forgiveness from God, no matter how magnificent that miracle is. This is a testimony that we have read here at their response to this resurrection of what Jesus had been teaching them in the last several chapters, that no man can come to the Father unless God draws him. Or like he said to Nicodemus, he said, you have to understand, Nicodemus, that man must be born again by the Holy Spirit. God must do a work to transform that heart of stone into a heart of flesh so that that person that can then believe and see the miracles as the sign to which it points, which is Jesus, and then their hearts being transformed see the sign, they see Jesus, and they respond in faith, and they're delivered from their apathy and their hostility toward God. You must be born again. So unless God grants that miracle of new birth, 
those who have no fear of God and no repentance and no reverence for him will never be transformed by a work that is done outside of man. You, you do understand that. None of us have been saved because of some, ultimately, because of some work that was done outside of man that therefore then we believed in Jesus. It was a work done outside of us by Christ in his resurrection. That's what redeems and saves us. But our faith is not grounded in the work done outside of man. It is grounded in who God is and that new heart that he has given us now so that we might have the right object of faith, which is Christ. So unless he does that, we will never turn to God. This is why Jesus said to the Pharisees at the conclusion of his parable to the rich man and Lazarus in Luke 16, 31, he actually said to them, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Okay? If you don't hear God's word and believe in it, which comes by the Spirit only, even if someone raises from the dead, they won't believe. And we mentioned this a few weeks ago. You're evangelizing, you're talking to someone, you're sharing the gospel with them, and they say, you know what, if Jesus would come down and do a miracle right now, I would believe. You've heard that before. Why doesn't Jesus just come down and do something, and if he does, I'll believe in God. And I always go back to this passage, and I, and I think, no, you won't, because you will find a way to rationalize it away. You will find a way to explain that miracle away so that you don't have to come to God. This is the human nature that, that we have. And so this, of course, is most clearly displayed in the greatest miracle that has ever occurred in all of humanity and ever will occur, which is not just the resurrection of Lazarus from the dead after four days, but the greater miracle of the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ from the dead after three days by himself. You see, Lazarus had Jesus call him forth. Jesus called himself forth out of the grave. No one came to bring Jesus out of the grave. Jesus resurrected himself from the dead. And the glory of God was the most clearly manifested and testified to in all of human history in that miracle of the Lord Jesus. And so today, much like in this day about Lazarus, you see many enemies of the gospel, fanatics fighting against the testimony of God regarding his son. And what they seek to do, what the world seeks to do, they did here and they still do in our present day, is man seeks to bury the glory of God. Man seeks to silence the glory of God, silence the testimony of Jesus, and cover it over by their sin. They don't want to confess him as Savior and Lord. They want to live for themselves and live for their own glory and live for their own desires. And ultimately, God says, I will wink at that for a time. He does. He's patient, right? He winks at it for a time, but God ultimately is laughing at their arrogance, the foolishness of it, because a time will come 
when God will put an end to all hostility. God will put an end to all rebellion toward him. Psalm 2, verses 1 to 6 and verse 12 put it like this. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? That's a question. You might ask that this morning. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. This has been John's point. Jesus, the Son of God, the Messiah, he came into the world, he showed himself to be the Messiah, and he says, if you will believe in him, you will have eternal life. And the world keeps rejecting him. Keep, keep rejecting him. And in this passage... We're going to see the three groups because there's really only two responses to Jesus. There's only two. You can believe or you can reject him. There's no middle ground. There's no place of neutrality. There's no place to hide. God's glory doesn't let us hide. You either come to Christ and bow your knee before him and submit to him as your Lord and as your Savior, and you follow him and you love him and you serve him and you put away sin and you put off the old self as he has created you to do, this is what belief is, or you reject him. Rejecting can look different. We see that here in this passage. There is a rejection that is hostile. We're going to see that in verses 46 to 54. There is a hostile rejection toward Jesus. But the fact of the matter is, most people are not of the hostile kind. And this is where it gets really, really hits home for us. Most people in the world are actually of the apathetic kind. The apathetic kind of rejection of Jesus. The indifference to Jesus. Who is Jesus? What does he mean? What do I care about what Jesus says? This is most of the world. You have hostile, you have apathetic. We see both here. In verses 55 to 57, we see that apathetic rejection of Jesus. So you've got the hostile, you've got the apathetic, and of course, you have, by God's grace, verse 45, the ones who believe. And that's, I pray, you and I this morning, beloved. And so that's what we're turning first to here in this passage in, in John 11. So when it comes to miracles in the scriptures, miracles are intended to either prepare us for faith or to confirm our faith. 
So Christ, when he did this miracle of Lazarus, this is what he intended it for. He didn't intend it just to do the miracle to show, look how great I am. He says he wants to perform this miracle either to prepare us, to prepare them, or confirm their faith. And so the miracle served both purposes. It confirmed the faith of his current disciples. We saw that last week. Disciples such as Martha and Mary and the apostles who were with him. They'd been with him. They'd heard his word. They'd heard his teaching. They'd seen his miracles. And this this raising of Lazarus from the dead was intended to confirm and to strengthen their faith in the Savior. And it should strengthen ours. We should look at this miracle and be, yes, this is... Uh, the God of the universe that we can trust and rest in. But it was also ready to use to prepare people for faith, to prepare those that have not yet come to believe in Jesus to see that Jesus is not like an ordinary man. Jesus is not like you and me. He, He spoke the world into existence. He raised a man from the dead. Jesus stands apart from all of humanity. And so it prepares them some for coming to Jesus in faith. And the father uses this miracle to draw some to his son, and that's what we see here in verse 45. Many of the Jews, therefore, after this miracle, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, they believed in him. That is, they put their faith and trust in Jesus. They repented of their sin. They saw their need for a Savior. They saw Jesus' power. They saw the sign of Jesus. They believed that he is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, and very specifically, their own sin. And so they came, and they repented, and they followed him. We've seen in John's Gospel a lot of false belief, superficial belief. Ultimately, people said they believed a false kind of faith, and then they abandoned Jesus when he started teaching. But here, it's a genuine faith, and I say that because John creates a contrast here. Many believed in Jesus, but he makes a contrast here with the unbelief, and that really is the second point that we're going to spend most of our time in this morning. The second group, hostile unbelievers. This particular group of Jews who had come with Mary and had seen what Jesus did, instead of believing in Jesus, they decided to go and tell the Pharisees about it. So they had done that before, remember in the gospel, they had gone and asked the Pharisees when the man was healed blind, what does this mean? They're asking for guidance. They're wondering at that time, what could this mean? But here, they're not going to the Pharisees because they, they want to kind of get their take on what Jesus did. They're actually going to the Pharisees with a malicious intent, It it could also be that this group was following Jesus around, and you might say as spies for the Pharisees. The Pharisees had already set out to reject Jesus, and they sent this group to follow Jesus and his disciples around to tell them, you know what, if Jesus does something else, and Jesus performs some other kind of miracle or something, we want you to come and to tell us. 
and they want them to come and to tell them because they want to shut Jesus down. And so there is a hostility in their going to the Pharisees to tell them about Jesus. And so the opposition now in John's gospel is becoming galvanized. You started to see first it was the leaders, it was the religious leaders of Israel. Then you started to see the people that were questioning and they weren't sure who is this. And now you're starting to see that it's, it's not just the leaders and it's not just random people, but now you have the common people of Israel, the, the majority of Israel and the leaders being galvanized in their opposition to Jesus. You see, like Psalm 2 says, why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? Why do they lift their voices against him and conspire against him? My king, God says. This is what you're seeing. They're, they're coming together. The world is coming together now to oppose Jesus. And this is further seen here in the end of John 11, in that the Pharisees, together with the chief priests, they take the issue of this resurrection and Jesus to the highest judicial body in their land of Israel that Rome permitted them to have, and it's called the Sanhedrin. So you see it escalating. It, and this is what John is getting at. It's escalating the opposition to Jesus. So the chief priests, this is a reference to the family members of the Annas clan. The Annas clan controlled the high priestly office for years. The family was not highly respected by either Roman or Roman, Rome or the people in Israel because they're suspicious of this clan of people. These are the, the chief priests. They're self-righteous. They, they exalt themselves above the people, and Rome sees them as kind of swindlers and doesn't really trust them that much. And they really treated the people poorly. And this is seen by the fact that Rome got rid of many high priests. It was supposed to be forever, but Rome kept getting rid of high priests, except for this one high priest who's head of the chief priests, Caiaphas. He's there for 19 years. He's a shrewd politician, but he's very boorish and he's very mean to the people. And so you have these chief priests that are there, and the Pharisees go to the chief priests, and they call together the Sanhedrin, all these Pharisees and these Sadducees, these leaders of the people, 70 people, the dividing final vote comes by the high priest, the 71st vote, and they're coming together, the whole council, to deal with Jesus. Now is the time. They've got the people that they need, the clout that they need. And so they convene their meeting, and this is the question they ask. This is the question the world asks. This is why the world hates Jesus and it hates Christians more and more. But the question they're asking still today that they ask is, what are we to do? How do we stop the influence of Jesus? How do we stop Jesus from continuing to make himself known in the world? Another way you could phrase a question is, they could have been also asking it like this, what are we accomplishing? That is, we've tried everything to stop him. We've tried to threaten him. We've tried to arrest him. 
and nothing is working by our current approach, what now? That's a, you could picture the meeting. Imagine, I think there's maybe 70 here people, but imagine us, we're the Sanhedrin, and we're gathering together now, and we're having a meeting, and the meeting that we're talking about here is, how do we stop Jesus? What do you guys think? His influence is great. His influence is growing. What do you think? How do we stop him from accomplishing what he's accomplishing? And the reason that they are thinking that way and the world thinks that way is not because this group is so concerned about the spiritual well-being of the people. You, you understand that. They don't really care about the people. They don't really care about whether or not the people are going to be healed or saved or transformed, the world doesn't care about that. What do they care about? The only thing this group actually cares about is their own power and influence and prestige. This is what consumes them. They are troubled that Jesus is gaining so much influence and so much popularity that they're afraid that as all of Israel comes to Jesus and believes in him, that Rome, who is over even all of the land, that Rome is going to look at them and Rome's going to say they're creating a big uproar and a big ruckus, and so they're afraid they're going to lose their temple, they're going to lose their nation, and Rome is going to come and take it away from them and they'll be out on their behinds, so to speak. They'll be cast out. This is what they care about. And you can see the stubbornness of the unbelief in their heart. They don't even deny that Jesus is doing the miracles, do they? They say, what are we to do about him? For this man performs many signs. They see it. They know. But they are so against Jesus, so hostile to him, that they just brush that reality aside. They brush it aside because they are so concerned with, rather than reassessing their life, that's what they should have done. They should have reassessed, oh, wait a minute, Jesus is doing all these miracles. Maybe I ought to stop, because who does that? Maybe I ought to stop and reassess my place before Jesus. Maybe I ought to look at my own heart and say, is there something to what Jesus is saying? He can raise the dead, but they don't do that. They say, we got to stop him. If he keeps doing this, all these people are going to believe in him. If we let him go on like this, I love that. If we let him go on like this. I mean, don't you see the arrogance in that? If I let God keep doing this, can't stop him anyway. He's going to do what he's going to do. Anyway, this is how they're thinking. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place that's our position, our temple, and our nation. And our nation. They are so consumed with their own glory that they want to cover up Jesus' glory. Do you do that? 
Do you do that? I do it. We're very good at it. When something happens that doesn't align with our own preconceived ideas, or God's word calls us to leave our sin, or we often find ways to suppress that truth. When God says, this is how you are to glorify me, we often look at that and we find ways to argue away the evidence. We find ways to try to cover over the glory of God so that we might continue to do what we want to do. And I thought of it, I thought of it in terms of a casino. I used to go in my younger days um, before I was just a strong believer. I, I, I was a believer, I, but I just, and I didn't gamble all the time, but sometimes friends would go and I'd go to a casino with them. And, and it just never really appealed to me long term, but I'd go. And I thought of it like, like a casino in the sense that when you're in a casino, one of the things that they do well, and I watched this one documentary, is they actually work at hiding the exit doors. They put all, they dangle all kinds of things in front of you. Even the way the slot machines are set up, they're set up at eye level and there's lights and the floor and the carpet. And what they're trying to do is they're trying to hide the door from the people because they don't want you exiting, right? They want to keep you in there. And when I think about man and our, and, and our trying to hide the glory of God, I, I think about Satan working in that same way in our life. And so what Satan likes to do is he, li he likes to hide the glory of God. He likes to hide the truth about Jesus. And the way that he does that and accomplishes that with us as sinners, Satan takes all kinds of things, and, and what he does is he dangles them in front of us. He dangles them so that we're distracted and our eyes are pulled away from the door who is Christ. They're, they're pulled away from the Savior. They're, they're pulled away from God's word because he wants us to be consumed with something else. He wants our hearts and our desires to be driven and taken by something else. And so you can probably name all kinds of things that he dangles in front of you. And, and I can name them all myself, it, you know, for, for the world in general. He, he, he dangles sex and, and pornography and lust, he dangles it in front of the world. It, it's roaring through the internet. It's ripping through social media. And the reason he's doing that is because he wants us to be consumed with it. He wants us to think upon these things. When God says in Colossians 3, set your mind on the things that are above, not on the things that are below. But, but Satan dangles them. And then he, he dangles money and wealth and prosperity in front of people. He even dangles it in front of people in, can you imagine, in Christian churches, in so-called Christian churches. The messages that they hear, they hear about prosperity and money and, and fame and power. And that's not coming from God. That's coming from Satan. He's dangling these things so that you pursue them rather than you pursue the glory of God. Because when you pursue the glory of God and when you pursue Jesus, what inevitably happens is the more that you see Jesus, the more that you see what? The more that you see your sin. The more you see God's holiness and his righteousness and goodness, the more inevitably you end up seeing that you are a sinner and that you actually do need a savior. Savior. 
And so these things are, are dangled. Drugs dangled galore in, in, in our society. In fact, I, I just read last, last week, or this week, they, they now found a drug in Colorado, a few of them, 30 pieces of it or whatever, that is 1,000 times stronger than fentanyl. Fentanyl's killing people by the bundles. And people in despair are taking these drugs because they're hopeless and they're lost. And what does the world do? The world just creates more ways to enslave people. This is what Satan does. And so he dangles these things. He dangles family and friends and comfort and philosophy and religion in front of people so that they are removed. And what did he dangle to Adam and Eve in the garden? He dangled God-likeness. God doesn't want you to be like him, but if you eat and sin in this way against God, you will be like God, and you will be happy. This is the lie. And so the world is consumed by these things, and they're consumed with it here. They love their power they love their authority, and Jesus is getting in the way. And I'm comforted by the fact that I know that I am covered by God's grace, and he is patient, and he is kind with me, that when I give in, and I give in to the dangling that the blood of Christ it does cover me, but it doesn't change the fact that we are called to glorify Jesus and to let go of our, of our sin. And I'm comforted by the fact that when you read the Old Testament, they had the same struggle. God, Satan, I should say, dangled fear and doubt in front of Abraham and Sarah. He dangled pride in front of Moses he dangled sin in front of Israel. He dangled power and sorcery in front of Saul. He dangled Bathsheba in front of David. He dangled religion and self-righteousness in front of the Apostle Paul. He dangles all kinds of things, but when God does a work, he redeems and he changes the heart. Then someone comes to faith in Christ, and so these people are like Israel of old, and Saul. They love their glory. They love their glory. Why are we not succeeding? And then what's interesting is Caiaphas, who already, we said, was high priest that year, he rebukes them. He actually says to them, in colloquial terms, you guys don't know what you're talking about. You have no idea what you're talking about. And he's basically saying, let's stop beating around the bush. We all know what needs to be done. And what needs to be done is we need to kill Jesus. Even if it's unjust, we need to get rid of Jesus. And here is how he puts it. He says to them, you don't know what you're talking about. We need to stop beating around the bush, kill Jesus, because it is better for you that one man should die for the people 
not that the whole nation should perish. In other words, he's saying Jesus' death will save us from losing our influence and, pay and place under Roman rule. And he's thinking the end justifies the means. If our end is our glory, and it means killing Jesus, then it's justified. Because our end is more important, our satisfaction is more important, Caiaphas is saying, and he's saying if it means we kill Jesus so that we get what we want and what we think we need, then let's just get rid of Jesus. They thought salvation depended on the temple in the nation. They thought salvation depended on all the things that they cherished most in the world. And if, if they should lose those things, they lose salvation. They'd be cast off from God. And so they said, let's kill Jesus so that we can save ourselves. Isn't that interesting? Let's kill Jesus so that we can save ourselves and magnify our own glory. Does that ring a bell to you? If someone should die and we should be saved, it does ring a bell, doesn't it? It's the gospel. However, for Caiaphas and those leaders, they didn't realize what they were actually saying. What they were actually talking about, and this is what John is aware of. John says, you listen to what Caiaphas said. John understands that this comment by Caiaphas is really a prophetic act, and it's laced with irony because Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin doesn't realize the significance of his own words. John says he did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, that Jesus would die for his elect. That's the substitutionary atonement. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's the gospel. Jesus died for sinners. He takes their sin upon himself. An innocent man, an innocent man, God, gives his life and he takes our sin so that in him now, if we believe in him, we might become the righteousness of God. Our sin paid for Christ, our substitute. And of course, John says, the death of Jesus extended beyond the geography of Israel so that he might unite one group together in one body under Christ. Something Jesus had already said in John 10, 16 to 17. I have other sheep that do not belong to this fold. I must bring them also, and they will become one flock. One flock, one body in Christ. And so, verse 53, the plot is made to kill Jesus, but this is God's plan of redemption. He's over it all. And from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Jesus, therefore, no longer walked openly among the Jews, but he went from there to the region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim, and there he stayed with the disciples. So, 
So the plot is set, the world is hostile, and they want to get rid of Jesus, and we do the same. But there's one last group, and this will be really quick, because I know it's, it's a little bit hot in here. But the final group is the apathetic unbelievers. They see the events surrounding Jesus, and if you've been in the Gospel of John, I, I try to put it in our terms. They see the events surrounding Jesus, and they watch it like people in our day and age watch a reality TV show. They see Jesus, and they watch him and observe him from afar, but they take no vested interest of their own in him. Jesus is just someone on the outside to them. Jesus is irrelevant to me. Jesus doesn't matter, doesn't matter what he said, and they're almost watching it thinking, man, I wonder what's going to happen next. This is really exciting. Jesus creating a ruckus here. The Pharisees don't like him. The Sadducees don't like him. So all kinds of things going around here with this Jesus character. He's doing a lot of cool things in the world. It's really interesting, his teaching. And so they're kind of watching it from this just apathetic, indifferent perspective, wondering, how is this all going to unfold? But when it really comes to their own heart, when it really comes to seeing Jesus for who he is, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, they can't see it. This is why John even notes, for the Jews, the Passover, which was on the horizon, represented the death of the lambs and the birth of their nation to freedom in the Exodus. And they're doing all the washings, and they're doing all the religious things, and they're, they're washing themselves, they're doing everything that they're supposed to do. They came to Jerusalem for that, over a million people probably there, and they are looking for Jesus, but they're not looking for Jesus because they see that Jesus came to die for their sin, and that Jesus came to bring them salvation. They're looking for Jesus for their own entertainment or interest. And they are ultimately also hostile. And the reason that they're also hostile is that because not very long from now, these same hostile and apathetic believers, they're going to be the ones who echo the plan of their leaders. As they cry out with their leaders about Jesus, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Beloved, if you believe this morning, give glory and thanksgiving to God and see Jesus for who he is and let us glorify him with our lives. Let us lay aside our sin. Let us repent of it. Let us honor him for who he is, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Like Psalm 2 says, kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. Kiss the son. Embrace Jesus. Learn of him. Follow him, obey him. That is God's work. This is what he does. If, if you're not in Christ and you are still opposing him, just understand that this is a description of you. When you say to Jesus, you're essentially saying, 
away with him, away with him, crucify him. What do I care? Crucify him. Don't stay there. Don't stay there because if you stay there, you will receive the desire of your heart and God will bring his wrath upon you and you will be judged for your sin and there will be no hope when that happens. It is appointed unto man once to die, the scripture says, and then comes judgment. Jesus came into the world that you might be saved today. See the Lord Jesus, turn to him, ask God to remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh that we might glorify God forever and ever. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for your word and for the testimony that John gave us here of what happened after our Lord rose Lazarus from the dead. What a miracle, Lord Jesus, that you have done there. A man buried for four days, your good friend Lazarus, and you allowed him to die and to be buried so that you might demonstrate your goodness and kindness to the world, that you might demonstrate your power to raise the dead. And you did that in such a powerful way. You spoke forth his name and he came out of the grave and they unbound his hands and his feet and he was alive. Lord Jesus, we know that ultimately that pointed to your own death, crucifixion, and resurrection from the dead. But you died in the, on the cross and you atoned for our sin, not so that we might have a perfect life here on this earth, but that we might have eternal life with you forevermore. And we haven't even begin, begun to taste the glory of what that means to be in your presence and to be cared for by you, for sin to be completely laid aside, for our tears to be removed, for our anguish and anxiety to be taken away. The glories of heaven are a place to rejoice and to look forward to, and we haven't even tasted that yet. But you have given us a glimpse of it in your power. And so we know, Lord Jesus, that you gave your life for our sin and you rose again for our justification and that if we are to believe in you, that you will grant to us eternal life. And indeed, that is our confession this morning, O God. We believe your word. We believe, Lord Jesus, that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, that you are the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world and you have taken our sin upon yourself and we rejoice in that and we are thankful Lord Jesus help us to leave this place walking in a way that pleases you and honors you help us to show forth your glory by the way that we love each other and by the way that we love the world not being of the world but being in it caring for the lost and for the hurting and for those that need to hear the gospel always making it a point to share your name with them that they might be saved with us. Oh God, we pray that you would bring revival into our land and into the people of this land. 
We pray that the gospel would continue to go forward and, and people would be convicted of their sin, of their hostility, of their rebellion against you, and, and they would turn from those things to the living God, that they would turn from all the things that Satan dangles in their eyes and they would turn to Jesus and see his glory. God, we know that it is your word that needs to be proclaimed and it is Christ who needs to be believed and we understand that we can't do that for them. It must be your work. It must be your power that redeems. And so we pray humbly that you would do that for our friends and our family. And we thank you humbly that you have done that for us. It's in the name of Christ, our Savior, we pray and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.